There's a baby. It's at the hospital, and you're the father. But that's impossible. It's only no, been... they're still not sure it is a baby. It's premature, but there's a baby. After the two of you are married, which should be very soon, you can pick the baby up. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Eraserhead. Dinner's almost ready. Come on in. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. Strangest damn things. They're man-made. And they're new. Hosted by Stuart. Mary tells me you're a very nice fellow. Jacob. He sounds very clever. And Arnie. Hello. I'm very pleased to meet you. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. All right with you? Of course. I'd be happy to. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. You don't mind, do you, Henry? No. Listener discretion is advised. It's okay. Today we're discussing Eraserhead, starring Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, directed by David Lynch. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and on Now Playing, everything is fine. You've got your reviews, and I've got mine. Stewart in LA. And this is the host that loves a dinner of man-made chickens. Jacob. <laughs> and we are here back at a director retrospective. Something I like to do. It's sometimes great to break up the monotony of sequels that frankly usually get worse over time. It's not usually hard to predict what's going to be good about a franchise that has six, seven, eight installments. But with directors, you never know what you're going to get. And we have covered Christopher Nolan. Unofficially, we covered Rob Zombie. We covered Tarantino last year. This was a big one, though. When we heard that Twin Peaks was coming back, it really gave us the push to pull out David Lynch, probably the most celebrated surrealist director of our time. Listeners, I hope you're listening here. I hope you're following. This is a bit outside the norm. We received some pushback when we did some Richard Linklater stuff. And I think there's some movies in here people will find up now playing's alley. Specifically Dune, maybe Mulholland Drive. I think Eraserhead. This is a horror film. Yeah, this is a cult film phenom. This is a midnight movie blockbuster. Seven million dollars this movie has made. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see you're not impressed. <laughs> I'm just saying, listeners, I hope you're with us. Let us know in the forums, Facebook. I feel like Pink Floyd. Hello, can anybody hear me? We're talking <laughs> David Lynch. It's just not our wheelhouse. I'm, but I like Lynch. We had to kind of decide who gets to put Lynch in our underrated movies book. I ended up there with Lost Highway. I'm not a major Lynch fan. I'd never seen Eraserhead until very recently. I did watch it a little while ago, so I wasn't totally fresh for this review, but I haven't seen Mulholland Drive. I haven't seen a lot of his films, but Twin Peaks made me a fan of that. And because of that, I like seeing his other works, even if I don't always enjoy his other works. 
Yeah, I think I'm similar to you, Arnie. I haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff. I think we all probably came about Lynch the same way. Like, I didn't even realize I had seen so much of Lynch. But, like, yeah, I watched some of Twin Peaks when I was in high school. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't associate it with Lynch. I saw Elephant Man when I was a kid. Didn't associate it with Lynch. Like, Eraserhead I didn't even associate with Lynch. I associate it with the Dead Kennedys because that's how I found out about it. They have a song called Too Drunk to F*** where they reference the movie You Ball Like the Baby in Eraserhead. And I had a chemistry teacher in high school go oh you need to find that movie and it was hard to find back then like i had to go to quite a few mom and pop rental places to find a copy of Eraserhead. but yeah i I saw all these things never really associating it with the director just not something i did back then but now i understand who lynch is and what makes a lynch film and i do think that lynch is a name brand i think that people that don't even watch his films know it means something i mean if i say the words david lynch to you it's going to connotate something very specific to you what's the first word that pops in your head weird yeah dream logic surreal yeah i mean i i do feel like he has almost the monopoly if you have a movie where strange violent unexplainable and sometimes hilarious things happen that's lynch he finds manic characters that are obsessive over weird things and lets them go crazy sometimes to funny effect sometimes to scary effect but i think the reason why he might be in our wheelhouse arnie is i see his influence quite often in today's horror movies james wan surrealism in general i i feel like his brand of creepiness has really infected the horror genre to a degree i'm sure we're going to talk about that going through now jacob i also like you saw elephant man without knowing who the director was long before twin peaks ever was but Eraserhead was one i knew because of twin peaks and you know i tell the stories on the show about how I geek out and get obsessed with things. But really, Stuart influenced me with his obsession of Twin Peaks, seeking out the actors and other stuff and the director's other stuff. And the video store where I rented a lot of porn in high school had a racer head <laughs> right by the checkout. And every time I went to rent some porn, I thought about seeing that movie because it was from the guy who did Twin Peaks. But the cover, Jack Nance, just with that hairdo. How could you not want to rent it? Like, yeah, I love that cover. Yeah, it just didn't grab me. So I didn't grab it. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the first Lynch that I saw, but I'll go ahead and admit I am probably the biggest fan of all of us. And I don't believe to be a fan of someone is to celebrate everything they do as genius. I like the what he taps into. And sometimes they're not successful. I always think they're worth watching and so that's what i would advocate here i like the fact that we're going through all his films they're not going to get all green arrows from me but i think everyone should see them so on some level i guess i am giving a green arrow to his work because i think he is the kind of director that commands attention and because he has a singular definitive style that has had such a a large view i mean we know this Uh, kubrick had everyone watch it before they started the shining called it his favorite film and a lot of artists have, have celebrated lynch and rallied around him and we see that so many people are willing to work on a low budget actors and such just to be in his films his influence is very large and i think also living here in la i've just had a chance to see him i mean i was at a book signing when he published his book catching the big fish he promoted inland empire by standing outside with a cow (laughs) saying for your consideration i drove by a few times and waved to mr lynch then i recently attended his first music cult curated concert two-day event in which he raised money for his transcendental meditation institute 
and had all sorts of musical acts and guests from his past career come and talk and share stories. That sounds like a Scientology competitor. Well, I don't think you're wrong. It does feel born in Hollywood, like Kabbalah and Scientology. Yeah, the Transcendental Meditation Institute and the guru that brought it to Hollywood. Yeah, it. Yes, I agree. There's a part of that that feels very celebrity-oriented, but it has helped David Lynch through his entire career. He used it to create Razorhead. He has never missed a day of meditation, twice a day, 20 minutes a day, and it's something he's very passionate about bringing to large amounts of people. We'll talk about it as we get into it, but I definitely see his influence of exploring your inner thoughts in really all of his films. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more as we get to his more recent films. But truthfully, does the man make movies anymore? We're really leading up to the resurrection of Twin Peaks on Showtime, but lately it seems he's more well-known for reading, is it weather reports or traffic reports <laughs> online? Where's he doing that? Yeah, he's been doing that for decades. That's all I know him to do, is that he hasn't made a movie since, what, 06? Well, let's point something out here. And I think this is, there are several things probably to explore just with his reputation. The first of which is, he has never, in his young life, set out to say, I want to be a filmmaker. There is no movie that inspired him to say, I'm going to pick up the camera. That is not how he came into being. That is not his influence. He wanted to be, and remains... A painter. And I think that that is a perspective that really does change the way he approaches story and visuals from a lot of Hollywood filmmakers. Yeah, I watched some of his short films before Eraserhead, and yeah, very animated driven paintings just kind of brought it reminded me of like a very horrific nightmare version of those Monty Python animations. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a little, but I, I, I see the influence. I, I had a brother that studied the fine arts. He studied photography and painting and all of that. I've been to a lot of art shows. I, I don't have a whole lot of painting knowledge, not as much as I would like, but I can see the influences of Duchamp and Francis Bacon and... Definitely Bacon, yeah. Yeah, Jackson Pollock he's fans of, and those were his heroes. It wasn't Hollywood that beckoned him. The fact that he ended up in movies is uh, almost a happy accident, one of many that happens to Lynch throughout his life. But probably the one thing that I always like to stress about Lynch, because I think so many people are quick to label him weird, and that there must be something wrong with a guy that would put out movies and TV shows and things like that. He has an incredibly boring, normal backstory. There's almost nothing about the first 20 years of his life that is in any way subversive. Well, yeah, first of all, he's from Montana. That's about all I know about his upbringing. There was some life in Philadelphia, wasn't there? That came much later, but as a child, he was born in Missoula, Montana and moved around. His dad worked for the government as a researcher for the Department of Agriculture. And so he spent a lot of time outdoors and in small towns on both coasts, both in Washington and in Virginia and, yeah, Montana, spending a lot of time in nature. Classic Americana. I mean, did not experiment with drugs. It was the 60s. Did not experiment with drugs. <laughs> did not grow his hair long. Wait a second. He made this film, Eraserhead, without drugs? I don't know that I can watch it without drugs. And that's exactly <laughs> what I want to stress to people. Because people believe that something like this can only come from a damaged or drug-influenced mind. And that is not where David Lynch comes from. That's not his source of inspiration. His drugs are caffeine, sugar, and nicotine. Those are the things that he overdoses on. 
Yeah, watching some of the early interviews or just footage of Lynch after this film came out, I, I almost wondered, is he on the autism spectrum? Like, I don't know if it's persona, just as an act that he's doing, but talking about how he just likes to have a piece of cherry pie every day. And, and it's so folksy, it's hard to believe it's real. It's almost too much. It makes me think, well, you know, here's one thing I would say about all visual artists that I've met and some of the more famous ones like Warhol is that oftentimes their masterpiece is their public persona. They are creating an image. That isn't a mistake that he seems so happy and smiley and then you look at his films and they're full of so much debauchery and unpleasantness. I think it heightens his ability to to look weird. You know, the world is filled with goths who, you know, pierce and shave their head and rage against the world. It's much weirder that we have a Boy Scout doing it. That one of the things that David Lynch always touts is that he made it all the way up to Eagle Scout. I don't know what badge <laughs> you get for making a movie like Eraserhead. Him and Spielberg, two very different filmmakers. Exactly. And yet, I feel like there are a lot of similarities at the same time. Yes, they're same age and came to career heights around the same time. But yeah, I think that when you meet David Lynch, it's oftentimes said that he just seems charming, nice, almost even a little simple. So to see what he's into, it never seems to cross over into his daily life. He never seems to exhibit the behaviors that he obsessively chronicles on film. But again, film was not his passion. He didn't have a passion. What's really, I think, important to point out too is for the first five or six years of his career, he just kind of drifted and dropped out of a lot of schools. Not only did he move around a lot, but when he graduated, he didn't really get very serious about what he wanted to do. He knew he wanted to be a painter. He had read a book that was very influential. He had a friend whose dad was a professional painter of portraits and landscapes. And he thought that would be a cool thing to study, but went to school to Boston and dropped out after a year, decided he'd move to Europe for three years, came home after two weeks, enrolled in yeah, the School of Fine Arts in Pennsylvania, dropped out after three semesters, came to LA for the AFI, was going to drop out after a year. He wasn't very committed to anything. He follows his bliss. And ultimately, he learned to follow the thoughts in his head through transcendental meditation and, yeah, just following his own muse. And I think that the movie we're going to talk about today, on one level, can be looked at very much as an artistic manifesto about that. But not a great burning passion for movies. What he wanted to do was make paintings come to life. What he talks about, the whole reason he ever picked up a movie camera was that he was painting outdoors and the wind kind of blew through him and he thought, wouldn't it be great to have those dimensions in painting, that you could have sound and that you could have the depth that film does, movement. Those were things he wanted to include. And his earliest works were actually installation art. The film that they talk about being his first film, Six Men Getting Sick, you can't even really see that the way he intended. He molded a screen. It had plaster casts of his head coming out of that screen. The projection would be on that. He would have things in the background, setting things on fire, making noise, what have you. His first films were really more like moving pictorial art. Yeah, what about the alphabet, which is perhaps the most horrifying thing I've ever seen? Like, Sesame Street on crack. Yeah, I 
tried watching some of those because I picked up, it was on sale a while ago. I knew we were going to get to this, the Criterion Collection Eraserhead. Yeah, that's the one I watched as well. And I popped it in and it had these short films by David Lynch. And I'm like, oh yes, you know, I came into this thinking I'm a much bigger David Lynch fan than I think I am as of this recording. And so I'm like, let me go see these early films. And I see like these six men things. I'm like, (laughs) all right, I see what he's doing here and I don't want to watch anymore. Well, again, for that one, you can't even really see it because you were had to stand in a space and it was three-dimensional. And again, it was it was only meant to be experienced as you would in a gallery. It wasn't meant to be shown like a movie. But he was fascinated with things moving. He was hired to make another one of those. And what happened was the camera broke and he had already blown some money. He told the guy that gave him the money, he's like, I'm not going to be able to make this sculpture. And he said, well, just go and make a film then. And so, yes, his next project just ended up being this color 16 millimeter film called the alphabet which to hear his wife talk about it's really an expression of how he finds language imposing his movies particularly the one we're going to talk about tonight aren't really language and plot driven and he doesn't really like to talk he likes things to be felt without being told how to feel about them that kind of goes back to what jacob was saying about the autism spectrum the nonverbal type of thing. However, seeing interviews with him, he's almost hyperverbal. I mean, if you want to diagnose David Lynch as an autistic, <laughs> I won't stop you. I'm not out to give him a label, particularly one that brands what he does in a negative or dismissive way. No, I don't I don't mean it in a negative way. I, it that's the popular thing to do is try to diagnose historical figures through sure. their works and and I definitely see that just watching Lynch. That is something that pops in my mind, but I also do agree with you. It could be a whole Warhol that it's all persona and fake. Yeah, I don't know how legitimate that is. And I do want to say there's nothing negative about autism at all. I mean, to be a high-functioning autistic is better than being perhaps a low-functioning person not on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, but it, it seems to gives him, quote, a problem, a reason to be the way that he is, that what he's doing wouldn't be normal. There has to be an abnormality that causes him to do what he's doing. Is I don't know. I disagree with that. As someone that has never dyed my hair or pierced anything or gotten a tattoo, I still have always liked provocative things, and I've always liked the projects and arts that pushes the envelope. I don't think you need drugs to want to explore boundaries. So, I mean, I get where he comes from with that. And I, that's one of the reasons I think I identify with Lynch is because he doesn't feel the need to express his rebellion in the way so many people do. But with the Racerhead, after he did those short, I mean, this film took, what, four or five years to come out? Well, you know, he, he made one more film. It was uh, his entryway into L.A. He was living in Philadelphia. He was married with a child. He was looking to get out. We'll explore that when we get into the movie. (laughs) But yeah, he applied to a grant and the AFI was a new film program. He was part of the second wave of people that they were bringing on. And so came to L.A., fell in love with it and never really left. And so he made one film here. It ended up being a film that a lot of people, you know, didn't know what to think about. It was called The Grandmother. Yeah, Artie, I didn't get through that one. That, that's where I was feeling you. By that <laughs> point, I didn't even push play. I'm like, that's a half an hour. I've seen the stuff before it. I'm just going to jump right to Eraserhead. I got through about six minutes. 
Okay. Well, there is some Eraserhead in the grandmother, and we'll we'll talk about it and some of his obsessions. I mean, I do think in looking at all these films in the retrospective, we're going to see some things come up again and again and again. And I think that's what sometimes makes an artist really interesting is the fact that they can't leave some ideas alone and then sometimes their thoughts on things change and what they include and what they leave out is part of the fun of their evolution. But yeah, it's a first film and look, all student films in my mind are more interesting for the creator than they are for the audience. I don't feel like most people's early work, no matter what medium they work in, is something most people want to partake in. I don't have that passion. Show me your best stuff. I don't usually need to see all all of your stuff. But I did watch The Grandmother in all these films, and I did see a style emerging that we'll definitely be talking about tonight. But after The Grandmother, he was approached by Hollywood. There were people taking meetings, and ultimately, they, he just couldn't write a script. They kept wanting to see a traditional script, and he would turn in 10 pages, 40 pages, 20 pages. They're like, no, it's a page a minute. We need a 90-minute movie, 90 pages. He just wasn't thinking that way. Again, his training and painting training, you don't think about story. You think about composition. And, you know, he was also thinking about sound and color. And these are the things that were occupying his mind. How things moved across the screen is how what he would write about. What they were moving towards or away from was not his concern. Yeah, I saw in one interview, he said he met with Warner Brothers about a razor head and that meeting lasted about five minutes before they kicked him out. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of strange that he ended up having a commercial career at all. I mean, when you see the movie we're talking about today, my first thought is always, who gave him the money to fund that? How would anyone risk that? How would you be impressed? What's the pitch meeting for that, <laughs> that story? I mean, I think that Lynch really says it best. You know, it's sort of the subtitle of the movie. It's a dream of dark and troubling things. And I don't know what else you could say that would be short about it. Well, it didn't surprise me when I read on Wiki, he got the funding initially from the AFI. This thing screams student film with no commercial aspirations. Yeah. And again, that's the blessing of being a, a student filmmaker is you don't have to think about paying the people back. You don't have to worry about making a profit. You only are concerned about expressing yourself. And I think that was a struggle. I mean, Lynch talks about the fact that he had everything going for him. His father was giving him money and had paid his way to the AFI. He had attended every school that he wanted to and been dissatisfied with it. There was something in him that was frustrating him, that there was an inner need to express himself that he could not find. And I do feel like Eraserhead, for me, we'll talk about it. There are many meanings for it. And, and as many people on earth that have seen it, probably a different one to describe it. But for me, it definitely feels like the story of someone finding their voice. But in order to talk about it, I suppose we'll need a plot. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Which, Arnie, I can't wait to hear you deliver. And you're going to have to wait because I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm telling you, this one we're going to go plot summary list. There were two choices. Either I don't do a plot summary, and I think this movie isn't about plot. I think we can all agree on that. And if I were to give one, it would... Be so high level because we give our interpretations of the film in the review. I try the plot summary to be non-judgmental or opinionated. The other option is all three of us write plot summaries and then we could all 
recite them as an exercise and it probably would sound like we saw three different movies it would be hard to believe (laughs) we're discussing the same film but no this movie is unusual for now playing to review and so we're going to review it in an unusual way we're going to jump right in and just kind of go through it and we will bring up what happens on screen i'm not going to call it a plot as we go okay well i think that's fair i mean i think you're right about one thing that all you could do was convey the movie that you saw not necessarily the movie that is and that'll be true of anyone that is trying to tackle this i want to put it out there one of the first things i want to say is that usually people feel when they see something like this that either the director is trying to make them feel dumb or they're not smart enough to understand what's going on i want to reassure everyone that lynch has no answer for why this movie exists. He will not talk about what it means to him, and he encourages everyone to have their own individual meaning for it. He doesn't want you to feel stupid. He wants you to understand you can make it be whatever it wants. It doesn't even have to have meaning. Maybe the best way to appreciate a Razorhead is just as you would an art gallery. Paintings, images with sound and movement. These are striking compositions. And I think that one thing that elevates this above just a student film is these things are in focus. They look good and they have a mastery that, you know, these are good sound designers, good cinematographers. Yeah, no, this film as we get into it i mean it, it definitely has multiple layers that it's functioning in my brain when you're talking about those moving pictures i definitely see that but i mean we should call out this is a black and white movie and just the level of artistry you know black and white isn't just shooting with black and white stock like you have to use certain kinds of lights i mean if you've ever seen the actual set for the adams family which is black and white there's a lot of pinks and just, just the way that's going to get translated in the film and i think just this film looks great for this stark black and white like it doesn't look amateur. It looks like someone that knew what they were doing with the lighting and with the camera work. The biggest compliment I'll give this film is to the cinematography. The way they use black and white is second to none. The Criterion disc actually came with a calibration menu. Yep, I calibrated my TV for it. I'm happy to say my home theater installer did it perfectly. I didn't have to change a damn setting, but I tested it. (laughs) And kudos to Criterion for a gorgeous Blu-ray where the blacks don't look great gray and pixelated but it has a great use of tone a great use of contrast it is a high contrast stark film any frame yes could be a piece of art in a gallery it is very striking looking and i have nothing negative to say about that yeah i agree his visual sense is fully formed he's at this point, had spent, you know, a decade studying the arts in serious or half-serious fashion. And I also just think he had some natural ability that there's just some people know how to compose. And I've only seen this movie one time before. It was sort of a perfect experience. I was in high school. I was visiting my brother on the big city of Chicago. We went to the Music Box Theater. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but if you're a film fan and you're in Chicago, do yourself a favor and go. It's like an old-time movie palace with stars on the ceiling and an old man that comes out and plays the pipe organ before. It's <laughs> and it's an otherworldly vibe, and this was the movie that I saw there, and it had been remastered for sound, and it was a pristine print, and it was this amazing experience that I just never wanted to duplicate. It lived in my memories as this vivid, wow, Chicago is a magical place where something like that can be shown. But coming back to it, 
and looking at this Blu-ray, I agree. They've done an excellent job of preserving this movie and the experience of watching it on my flat screen TV was just about as good as that projection 20 years ago. But what we open to, I'll admit, I was taken aback. Knew nothing about this film. I had seen the video cover. That is all I knew. With that guy's Barton Fink hairstyle, I didn't know what to expect, but his head floating sideways through space was not it. With sperm coming out of his mouth. What is that? That's not even a sperm. That's like a... Well, uh, that's up for debate. (laughs) A hose? A space creature? Is he an alien? I guess this is my first question, (laughs) is is he an alien? Because my reading is he is an alien. It seems like you're taking this very literal. Like, I I don't go there. I don't know if anything we see is actually real. Yeah, it's expressionistic. I mean, it would be wrong to think that because we see a planet, we're on another world. I think that this is... Well, it's it's a world of dreams. So, yes, perhaps it's the world the way that David Lynch conceives of it. But it feels like Earth. I feel that a lot of what we see here is autobiographical and maybe the easiest way to talk about Eraserhead because it is kind of overwhelming to talk about all of its potential meanings and what it makes you feel is to understand that there are a lot of details here that are very autobiographical, that they come straight from Lynch's life. And though he may hate the fact that people might try to psychoanalyze him by looking at this movie, on one level, I can't not see the parallels of the haircut, the 50s fashion, the fact that he was, yeah, in an industrial area. They lived in a bad side of town. He was forced into a marriage he did not want to be in because they had a child. And that child did have a clubbed foot deformity that needed corrective surgery and that he would end up leaving this woman and meeting another woman. And yes, there are many parallels here that you could say, oh, this is a man taking what he knew from his life and making it fantastical. Yeah, I I do think we open with a scene of conception. Again, a very abstract, dreamlike one where we see a sperm-like thing being dropped into a puddle, perhaps an egg. Like, I I do see that here. This, I think, is a very sexual film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would hope that most people can at least recognize that there are sexual imagery here. What that means is up for total debate. No one has mastery over what all of that means and Freudian interpretations, but we can all see that there are Yes, vaginal holes, a lot of sperm, maybe a phallus at the end that gets stabbed a lot. I don't know what I'm seeing. I have seen this movie twice now, and it is helpful to see this a second time. But you're seeing some planet in space that is not Earth. You're seeing some guy who looks like he's got radiation poisoning sitting at a window. You see our main character, whose name is not Eraserhead, but in fact Henry, sideways with a poorly superimposed dryer hose coming out of him. It's not poorly superimposed. I think the fact that it's superimposed tells you we're inside his head. These are his thoughts. That this planet we're seeing is not Uranus, Saturn, Neptune, Pluto. This is the inner worlds of a man who doesn't speak much, who doesn't convey what's going on with him. And what we see controlling him, this man in the planet inside of it, is a, is a deformed guy that pulls levers. That he's someone that works 
in an automatic way without thinking he's spitting out of sperm here and it's going out into the universe. We'll later find out that he's impregnated his girlfriend without even realizing it. He finds out in a really bad, shocking way. <laughs> and I think that it, this was something I saw in earlier David Lynch films, that the act of sex was never displayed carnally. It was asexual. And the grandmother, uh, the kid planted seeds into a pile of dirt and grew her out of a cocoon. And that oftentimes, and that was the same way that he came into the world with his parents. And all of his films up to this point have a biological uh, retching, like people just kind of vomit blood or, or what have you. And I do get the sense that if we're to look at this as a sexual act, that here is Henry kind of just opening his mouth as he yawning. He, he's not into it. I can tell you this is the least sexy <laughs> sex scene I've ever seen. Yes. <laughs> it seems like an automatic function. Someone pulled a lever, he opened his mouth, and before he knew it, he was a father. It, it could also just be inexperienced youth, too, like not knowing what you're getting into. Again, there's a lot of ways to read this. I see, like, this man in the planet. I don't know. His his ego is it. I, I don't know what Freudian word is right, but, like, his conscience... You know, you know, we'll see that man come back later as kind of reprimanding him, I think. But yeah, I, I mean, even when we see after this weird sex scene, I'll call it, we'll see Henry staring off somewhere, maybe staring at that planet in the sky and then walking to a tunnel in L.A. and just going through this stark industrial landscape. Pretty. Very well shot, as I said. The scene here, the way it's framed, all of the gray, everything, gorgeous, meaningless. I, no, I don't think it's meaningless. It's for you to define the meaning. <laughs> if you didn't see anything into it, why aren't you engaged? I guess would be my, my question. Why aren't you asking questions about what you're seeing? Because I spent seven minutes watching him float in a star field without a single word said. I'm trying to figure it out, but instantly this film is turning me off. Okay, so and some of that is sound design, because I think the sound design in this movie, the fact that there are no words for 10 minutes, is part of its beauty. My memory of this movie, and I had only seen it twice before, is that it was almost a non-talking movie. I won't say a silent movie, because it's all about the sound design. It's all about the hums and the buzzes of mm -hmm. this, again, this industrial city where you feel like you're under fluorescent lights the whole time. I mean, one of my interpretations of the film is that it's just about a feeling. It's, you know, some films I think are more about an emotional state and this one i think is also a movie just about anxiety like i listened to just the soundtrack while i was like dozing to sleep one night and like it made me anxious it, it really messed with my head yeah i think one thing that people really rallied around music critics anyway is the whole industrial scene was just kind of getting started throbbing gristle and all of that to have a soundtrack more or less just be clanging and banging and yeah various audible levels of hums would have been really radical. In fact, this man is totally different from the youth culture of the time, that this is no hippie, that this is no long hair, that he has what is like a, a nerdy 50s look to him in a suit from a secondhand store, and that, yeah, that, that hair that goes, the pompadour that goes on forever. I mean, I definitely feel like this was foretelling a punk look and a punk vibe. Yeah, and it's it's notable that so many punk bands, you know, again, Dead Kennedys reference this song, Bauhaus, it, it was Pixies, I do an interpretation of In Heaven. I mean, it's just in that culture, and I think it really grasped onto that aesthetic, that industrial, again, Robin Gristle's a good one, that's, that's what I was thinking, just that whole sound here where it's atonal. Hamburger lady, yeah, I like them. <laughs> but you know, the other thing that I was getting off of this, 
And Arnie, I know this is in your wheelhouse. The fact that it is so silent and this man looks so absurd, and I'm just kind of laughing at how silly he is, when he's walking around this modern world of wasteland and stepping in puddles and all of that, it's not funny like Chaplin, but it does certainly evoke that silent movie era comedian. To a degree, but I guess the situation is, all right, I am actually benefited coming to this movie by the fact that I know Twin Peaks very well. I've seen that entire series end-to-end probably a half dozen times. So I'm used to some of these Lynchian affectations, the silence, the humor in long pauses. I mean, there's a couple images here that are straight in Twin Peaks. The zigzag floor pattern of his apartment building. There's a room with long curtains. We're going to be seeing all that again in the Black Lodge. So I can see... His attempt at humor here that I would find used better later? Does that make sense? Like, I'm seeing a stand-up comic trying out his material on an audience before he refines it and it actually gets laughs? Yeah, I mean, it's a first film. I, I get that. It, it's not going to be... He'll have more money and he'll work with more, quote, professional actors. So I get that, yes, this could be all done to greater effect. But I don't know that, that this is supposed to be a comedy. I don't get the sense that we're supposed to be rolling in the seats for 10 minutes. I think we're supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's a comedy where you're rolling the seats, but I do laugh in this film. I do think there is some dark humor going on. I mean, when he's standing in the elevator and it takes forever for the doors to close, counter Paul, like a lot of this stuff does feel like depression era vaudevillian humor going on. Only that guy in the pencil factory ever seems funny to me. The rest of this is merely strange. That's all I can give it. And the sound design for me was incredibly off-putting. We had this argument, and I'll call it an argument, back with our Texas Chainsaw 1 review, where those atonal noises I considered an auditory assault, and this is right on par with it. And Exorcist, I think we had this exact same conversation with that. I find when your attempt is to annoy... I find it annoying. Congratulations, you have succeeded in pissing me off. Good job with the sound. I don't think they're trying to annoy, though. Unsettle. I mean, I, I, annoy is puts a stamp of it about how to feel about it. But I, one, one thing that I think is empirical, we can all agree on that what we're seeing here is this is a very strange man who seems very regressed and uncommunicative walking through a world that seems badly damaged, that this is an unpleasant place. I think if you're trying to communicate like this alienated landscape, again, industrialized, when we meet Mary, her father's going to call the place a hellhole. It's the right feel. Like, I don't know what kind of music or soundtrack he want. I do feel like, yes, you should feel uncomfortable. Everything about this is unsettling. Yeah. I liked certain buzz when I thought we were going completely off his POV. Maybe this guy's insane. This buzzing in his head. Is it a sign of schizophrenia? But the buzzing never really comes to an end, except for some weird singing sequences. Go to a city with a lot of power lines. Like, you hear that buzz all the time. I have been to just about every major city in this continent, and I've not heard that. Well, I mean, we don't have the industrialization the way that we used to, but I do think this is a certain time and place. One of the things that I love is that, yes, it was taken from memories of Philadelphia, but shot in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, oddly enough, that the school was actually in a mansion, and, and they just kind of let Lynch take over some rooms because it was so big, and he just built a lot of these sets— 
But the exteriors here, this is, believe it or not, where the Beverly Center is. When he's walking around in some of this industrial wasteland and you see the oil drills and all of that, that is exactly what Chopping Mall would be in seven years. I read that and got such a big smile that these two vastly different movies were shot at the same coordinates. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about that. But yeah, L.A. has gone through a major upheaval and Lynch was there at the right time. You know, the 70s was harder on cities than it is now. Almost every major city has had a big makeover in the last 30 years. But yeah, even in good old swanky Beverly Hills, there were areas that Lynch could turn into this on a minimal budget. But to kind of go through the plot, since I didn't give a plot summary, what we have (laughs) is strange scenes in space, the sex scene as Jacob described it, and then yes, this man Henry, who's played by Jack Nance, is walking through an industrial area and eventually goes to his home where a neighbor says a girl Mary has invited him for dinner at her parents' house. Right. And it's clear from the pregnant pauses that he's uncomfortable about all of this. He'll go into his room. He'll open the drawer. We'll see that the picture he has of her, he must have torn in half at some point. That there has been a fight. That there has been a falling out. And we'll even find out that it's been a while since he's seen Mary. So this is a reconnection that may be undesirable. He's a solitary man, and I think sometimes when he's lying on bed smiling, he looks like he's at his happiest when he's daydreaming, and when he's daydreaming about that neighbor you mentioned, because she's sort of the Isabella Rossellini wannabe that is kind of popping up in a lot of Lynch later movies. Or staring at that radiator, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But yeah, again, there is this weird aesthetic to his very tiny apartment. Like, he has a, I think, a potted plant, but it's not potted. No pot. It's just like soil in in a bush hanging out on a dresser i have a strange reading of this movie i'm just going to throw out there he's a bird who thinks he's a man and that apartment is a nest that's the only reason i could explain all the pine cones and dirt there is a worm later on he'll find there's a worm and his baby looks like a bird i mean i'm going all over the place here i'm like he's a bird who thinks he's a man what if that's what Lynch was really going for? That'd be crazy. That's very Kafka-esque. The man that became a cockroach. And that was one of the things Lynch considered adapting around the same time. So you may be on to something there. What I get from it, and it comes a lot more from having looked at his paintings, is that one of the things he's fascinated about is biomechanical operations. How the blood vessels in our body can look like piping underneath a city. And so we have a mixture in this room of things that would be exterior, outside, and things that would only be found in a major city as well. You know, I realized he has a framed picture up in his room. At one point, I thought it was a tree, and then later I saw it was a (laughs) mushroom cloud. Yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed that on the second viewing, and especially for the time. I mean, the late 70s, the nuclear fear was there, but it wasn't at its peak. Uh, I think it was at a peak for sure. I think it was had been going on ever since 19, you know, 45. I think that we've been fearing the bomb and throughout the 50s. And I think you got to keep in mind, Lynch grew up as a child in the 50s. So he was exposed to all of that propaganda and all of that nuclear fear and that he saw on one hand, the Eisenhower utopia and saw the best of that. But at the same time, he saw underneath all the tension and social strife, particularly when he was living in Philadelphia with its high murder rate.
outrage and where so many people I mean he saw a gang execute a 14 year old boy right in in front of him and his wife and child so I mean he talks about Philadelphia being very much like this dystopia that we are here in Eraserhead at the beginning but you know for me I get that this movie is weird and yes these first 10 minutes you are at sea I do not know what's going on but I think actually one of its strengths is that it really does find a narrative spine here and a very relatable scenario it's a scene that we've seen a million times before a guy has an awkward date with his girl and potential in-laws but it's done in Lynch fashion and this is where we get to see Lynch's personality and his humor when we have him reunite with Mary yeah when he goes over I guess to the exes that's their name, the letter X, Mary X and Mr. and Mrs. X. He goes to the X's house. And again, I like the little clues that there's going to be this theme about pregnancy and babies. Like there is this very disturbing, I think, again, a lot of it's because of the sound design of these suckling dogs with, with its mother just lying on the <laughs> ground there. Yeah, it is definitely, again, I love visuals, and I think Lynch does too, that say everything that needs to be said with nobody speaking, that sex is in the room, that people want to talk about something like that, I mean, and there's these dogs suckling there, it just, yeah, it just really creates an uncomfortable, humorous atmosphere, which is all Lynch, again, when I think Lynch at his best, he's making me laugh at people's misery. And this, again, gives me shadows of the kind of weirdness we will see in Twin Peaks. When the father comes out talking about the man-made chickens and the plumbing and look at my knees and the uncomfortable silence and... That smile, that smile that he has. Yeah, the father. Yeah, he's very well (laughs) cast to be creepy. And I can't really tell... If Henry is unemployed, he says he's on vacation, but yet he says he has a job later, and it seems like it's quite a while later, they say he's on vacation again or still. I don't know what's up with him. That's where I'm getting Lynch, the actual artist, was that, yes, he was supposed to be in school, and he was always enrolling in these programs, but he was never showing up at class. He was never doing the coursework. He was always quitting and going off and doing his own thing. And keep in mind, the only reason why he did enroll in the Philadelphia school at all and stayed in that hellhole was that the army came calling. Vietnam War. He was going to be drafted unless he went to school. And so that was the only thing that got him to commit to that school. So he was kind of forced into a bad situation. And I feel like you get that tension here, that that's where he met his wife and he did get pregnant and that was not planned or something that he wanted you get that playing out here in this dinner scene yeah i feel like if if you're a fan of twin peaks and that's mostly what you associate with lynch like this is the stuff you're going to like the most is this dinner meeting it's the most twin peaks yeah it definitely is it's manic and funny and it just it's a relatable scenario even though we might not understand the first 10 minutes i do think everyone knows what it is to stand on a doorstep and have the parents of the girl you want to pick up like eyeing you i mean that is an uncomfortableness that most everyone has experienced at some point being evaluated by someone else's parents and this is exceedingly strange and i will give it points for that in isolation everything here 
is hysterical, especially the mother going back to make the salad and there's another (laughs) woman there, catatonic. Again, I mentioned Texas Chainsaw. This is reminding me of Grandpa, the way like she puts the salad forks in her hand and has her toss the salad as like a puppet and then takes everything out. And it's, of course, very slow, very deliberate. That's going to be, again, Lynch's style to do. It is strange completely. I'm just going to say right away, though, the reason why this isn't working for me like Twin Peaks is, is Twin Peaks has these kind of accents, but surrounded by a fairly strong narrative thread. By a half an hour into this, I'm really wondering what the narrative thread is. This appears to be, as Stuart said, a moving painting where story isn't its point. The point is, look at my pretty visuals and my strange moods and experience. I feel like you're having a Kubrick 2001 moment with this film, because I feel like that's a movie that's more about the visuals and about the emotions you feel. That probably has more narrative than this one. It does. I do feel like this meeting with the parents kicks off whatever you want to call the plot of this film. Like, it- Yeah, I think it's a solid plot in this point. I mean, not the whole movie. I get that it... it- It abandons this storyline. But this thread is, again, a thousand Adam Sandler comedies could be built out of this kind of thing. The idea that you don't know whether you want to date this girl and the parents are forcing you to get married because there is a baby. Although it may not even be a baby. That's my favorite line in the whole movie (laughs) is that the mom kind of pulls him off to the corner. And when she's not licking him and making out with him, she's telling him that he's going to have to marry his daughter because... There's a baby. And you can read here that he's not sure that it's his. Yeah, because he says it hasn't been long enough or Mm -hmm. something to that effect. And yeah, oh, it's premature. (laughs) Yeah, we're not even sure if it's a human. Like, yikes. No, they say not a baby. They never say not a human. I really, again, I go back to the question of, is he an alien who's fallen to Earth because of that (laughs) space thing? Because what he gives birth to is not a human baby of any form. His girlfriend has the last name X, so she could be the alien. Yeah, but I mean, magical realism. I mean, you're familiar with the idea that within the mundane fantastical things happen and and it's just a part of the world to me that's what this is it's because again we saw a planet doesn't mean that this must literally be a space alien that's come to earth he was superimposed above that planet it it, it was an inner dimension and again what what's tricky about this movie is we're never sure what's waking state what's fantasy and what's quote-unquote real but i get this scene here as being the real movie and the real plot and Boy, what a proposal, too. He gets a nosebleed, and while he's trying to mop up the blood, is being like, oh, sure, I'll get married to you. I mean, to me, this is funny. You won't mind, will you? (laughs) That's quite a marriage acceptance. Oh, no, I won't mind being married to you. (laughs) What even freaks me out more with this scene is when they go to eat those man-made chickens, and it, like, starts moving around, and he's cutting it, and, again, giving birth to just spewing blood out as, as if a birth scene, again, to foreshadow the news to come. Six men getting sick, the alphabet, even the grandmother the kid like squirted over the sheets lynch is obsessed with bodily fluid and the loss of bodily control i mean it's just been in all of his films well probably i'll be looking for it i don't know if it's in all the future ones but i definitely see that it is an obsession that he has here the act of sex itself felt involuntary and now yeah we have this blood seeping out from what have you and it's all produced 
Yeah, a baby. Now, there was many scenes that they weren't able to film. This movie did suffer from the budget it was given. I think the budget on this was about $10,000. That's what AFI gave David Lynch initially, and then he ended up needing more because they didn't know it, but they thought they were funding a 20-minute short, and he was making a feature. And so what started out being a project that filmed in the summer of 1972 was not finished shooting until 1975, and then wasn't done being edited until 1976 into 1977. So it was a six-year process and probably all told about $100,000 to get this thing made. But they didn't get to make everything they wanted. There was a scene of them picking up the baby that never got filmed. I kind of like that it just jump cuts. I think of that as being very Lynchian that we're just suddenly thrust into a new scenario where she's living at his apartment and we're were faced with that baby. Yeah, we'll have a number of those jump cuts where it's just like out of nowhere, you're into the next scene. And again, is this real? Is this a dream? Like all the stuff with Mary's parents, maybe the real world, but filtered through his thoughts. Like what would that look like? You know, instead of filming me just sitting here talking, recording a podcast, what would the documentary be if it was filming my thoughts as I was sitting here talking about this, you know, doing this podcast? I, I think that's the kind of level you have to view Eraserhead at. It, it's nothing is real, but there's some stuff that's more real than others. I really love movies that take reality and then twist it. Like Being John Malkovich is a fantasy yeah. or a fable that half the time happens in the world I know and then half the time extrapolates. And so I feel, again, this is the narrative strong part. If you are trying to hold on to something, these are going to be the scenes that you're holding on to. I love the fact that alright, so Henry comes home presumably from a day of being at the printing press, which David Lynch did actually do. That was one of many odd jobs he used to pay for this movie. But he comes in, he smiles when he sees that baby. That maggoty, you think it's a bird, Arnie? A bird or an alien? I mean, what is, like, what is the real prop? Because that thing looks really good for a $10,000 budget. Like, the way its eyes move, the way everything moves, I think it's a real alien. It can blow bubbles. There's air coming out of it and a tongue and everything. That is a little bit tricky to do. And there's one shot. I figure there's somebody under the table doing rod puppetry for most of it. Yeah, the way it's set up, yeah. But there's one shot where you see Mary in front of the table, the baby is moving, and nothing's underneath it. I mean, that's well-done puppetry. It is the most closely guarded secret of this entire movie. Even the projectionist, when they were screening the dailies, was not allowed to look at the scenes with the baby to see how they did it. Only the six or seven people that were there for the six years know how this was done, and none of them are talking. Most of them are dead at this point, actually. I've heard rumors of skinned rabbits or cats. I know in one of the extras I watched, they actually had like this smashed cat covered in tar that they got from a vet that died. So I, I wouldn't put it above them that they use some kind of real animal. Yeah, that's one thing that, again, Lynch is fascinated with biological process and studying it in an urban environment. I think he was doing that just for a painting exercise using that cat. But yes, it's been theorized that this might be a cow baby or it might have living parts to it. But I do know this. 
Lynch's daughter, Jennifer, did show up on set when they were making this, and they let her play with it. So I don't think it was all <laughs> organic, but I think there might have been pieces. It was not rotting flesh that might have some diseases. Yeah, well, maybe they, they treated it or, like, leathered it or something. I don't know. Yeah, it is the wetness to it that makes it seem like a real organic being. Yeah, but what a toy to play with when you're four years old, I gotta say. <laughs> Santa did not bring this to anybody else. But I did notice his little smile. I couldn't tell if it was at the baby or Mary. And this is where I'm gripping, thinking there's actually a story here. Like, he is happy to have this nuclear family, but then being around them is going to make him miserable. It should be said, though, that he always stops at his mailbox, Henry, when he's coming home. And he there is something in the mailbox this time, a little mealworm something. I'm not sure. And I think that's what he's actually smiling about. I don't know what that means. But he looks bored once he gets home. He lays at the bed and, again, looks at that radiator that turns into a stage for a second and then back. Nobody touches anyone in this movie. I mean, that's what's interesting to me. He's coming home. Not a kiss. Not a hug. I won't hold the baby for you. He smiles. He walks over to the bed and he looks into the radiator. Which, to me, implies this is a man more entertained by his fantasies and his daydreams than his reality. That the creation of a baby is not as interesting as what he might create with the thoughts in his head. And I took it as he actually was interested in the baby, but he comes back, the baby's crying, the baby's deformed. What I didn't realize till the end of the film is this baby has no skin underneath the neck. Its organs are all held together by gauze. Yeah, it's bundled and we would just presume that that's... You know, just to keep it warm. No, it's to hold the innards together. That There's really just all it is is like, I think, testes or something. It just ends up looking <laughs> like a penis with balls. No, there is like lungs and a heart in there. I mean, we see the lungs inflate and deflate later on. I don't think those are lungs. Those look like <laughs> testes to me. There's a lot of white stuff coming out by the end of this film, but we'll get there. Yeah, but anyway, to each their own, I certainly couldn't argue conclusively they aren't lungs. My balls may throb, but they don't inflate and deflate visibly. I mean, this baby may not even be deformed. Again, this could be how Henry sees it. This unwanted child that he was on vacation and now his vacation's ruined because he had this kid. Yeah, permanent vacation because he doesn't want to get serious. He doesn't want to grow up. He doesn't want to be responsible. And, you know, we never do see his work. I don't think it was ever scripted, but I can't imagine he's very serious at the job. He seems someone very much lost in thought in his own head. He seems like a cog in the wheel, which makes it appropriate when we see that man on the planet just pulling levers, he, he feels very automatic like that. Yeah. And so that he gets this delivery in the mail and that he opens up a box. And this is something we'll see in Lynch again and again is sort of the present, for lack of a better word, whether it be a severed ear or a key or characters will get a mysterious object that leads them into a larger mystery that that there is this box with this thing that looks like the sperm he spat out at the beginning kind of looks like his baby we'll see this spermazoid imagery throughout this however you want to interpret that i cannot do that for you i thought it was a worm he was going to feed his baby the bird no <laughs> okay i mean it looked like it was already fine eating whatever she was gooping down its throat, but possibly that as well. I see it as very much that someone was sending him the message that he could create again. And again, I feel like so much of the rest of the movie is a frustration that creating life with the baby and creating this family unit isn't enough for him. That he needs to let whatever's in his mind 
escape. And I will say, my wife would not watch this movie with me because she's seen it before, and she said that crying from that baby. On one <laughs> hand, it just drives her crazy because she had a child that would never stop crying when it was a baby. Like, it just brings back that frustration. Like, she, at times, she, I think she did feel like Mary X, where she just wanted to walk out, but she also feels bad for the baby because it just will not stop crying. But, like, that is a real frustration. We'll see Mary. She walks out. She can't take it either. Of all the noises in this film, that baby crying is one of the most pleasant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and again, Lynch wants it to be uncomfortable for people. He's not trying to make it entertaining or easy. I think that, again, he's not thinking about a movie for audiences. He didn't believe anyone was ever going to see this movie or that it would be distributed. He was trying to get something out of his head expressed. And I think that if he lingers on things and seems obsessive about things that are unpleasant, it must mean that there's something about it that was bugging him. And I imagine that, yes, during those times when they had no money in Philadelphia, a deformed daughter and having no income, the threat of Vietnam, the crime that's going on outside with gang violence, all of this would make it feel like one big shrieking baby. I, I get that this would be a mood of a time and place for him. And doesn't have to literally mean that, that his own child was such a burden that he hated it. It just, it more it speaks to how you feel. And I think it's so important when you look at art movies to talk about how it makes you feel as opposed to what it means or what the metaphors represent. It's making me feel like I should be surfing the web. Really? Yeah. Is it that there's not enough dialogue? Do you feel like if they were talking more, you'd be stimulated more? I always feel like it's really hard for modern audiences to watch silent or near silent, near wordless films. I'm good with silent movies, like old time silent movies, because they have a lot of action going on. This is silence mixed with slow. Very, very slow, ponderous. And yeah, again, we're at the point, and it's weird for me to be saying this at this moment, but it is going so slow, the narrative, whatever there is during this half hour, the second act, is barely moving. I really had to struggle to pay attention. Again, I usually take my notes in Google Docs. I had to break out some paper because I was having my attention diverted by anything online. <laughs> It was just not holding my interest at all. Did you want to go online to like look up answers for this movie or just surf the web? Hey, pop-up ads, look, internet porn, anything other than this. Okay, so you're not captivated by this world. You don't like spending time in it. No, I, I wanted out and I was literally clock watching. See, and I feel like I would call this a horror film with that sound design and with the pace and this weird alien mutant baby, like... I feel dread in this film. I feel like how I want to feel in a horror movie. Like, I feel the emotion I think Lynch wants to get across of just this anxiety and this dread and fear of the unknown. Yeah, a baby crying is going to give you anxiety. A radiator. I mean, I re my place in Chicago, I remember it would just clang and make that noise and all that wake me up in the middle of the night. That is nightmare-inducing and anxiety-inducing as well. And uh, it introduces, I think, something we'll definitely be talking about in almost every Lynch movie movie is the cosmic guardian angel that will come in and offer some kind of comfort to our main character that there is a creature uh, living in his radiator singing a kind of a Shirley Temple with swollen cheeks that the credits refer to as the lady in the radiator. Until the credits rolled, I didn't know this was in the radiator. This is the only technical flaw I will put to the filming is you see some light behind the radiator, but I don't think he had the money to really 
sell me that it was behind the radiator. So I didn't know if it was like the neighbor downstairs or something. I didn't get the radiator bit until I read it. And then when I watched it the second time, I'm like, oh, that's what he's trying to do. Oh, I, th- I thought it was pretty clear because he stares at that radiator, turns into a stage, and then later we'll see that same stage. I do know this was an idea that came later. It took so long to film, like he started adding characters. Yeah, this was not the original intention. And I just want to say at this point, for For the first two years, before this movie kind of ran out of money and stopped filming for well over a year, that basically they got the stuff with the parents and they got some of this stuff on the exterior and some of the stuff in his apartment. But when they were filming some of these radiator scenes, they did not know that there was going to be a radiator later, that that came later, that Lynch had a breakdown. That when the money ran out and his parents said, you're cut off, you need to give up film, go do something else. And he was feeling like, why isn't this working for me? I have everything going for me. I've been able to pursue what I wanted, had money given to me to express myself. And I haven't been able to do that. I haven't been able to complete this film. I have all this white male privilege and can't do anything with it. Well, I mean, call it what you will, but yeah, I guess in a way that was going for him. The frustration of not being able to spit it out and to feel that language wouldn't do it, that painting wasn't doing it, that it needed to be a movie. He discovered Transcendental Meditation at this time. He first went to a therapist and he was like, you know, I'm worried that if I work through and psychoanalyze my dreams and my compulsions that it will make me self-conscious and I won't be able to be a creative artist. And is it possible that could happen? And the therapist, to their credit, said, oh, yes, that could definitely happen. And he said, thank you very much. Not interested. Walked out of the therapy office. His sister said, why don't you try meditating? And I do believe the way that he found the radiator lady, which is sort of a savior character that kind of helps Henry go beyond when he loses his head. I do feel like that, all of that, the ending to this movie and that savior character came out of his discovery that you can transcend anything going wrong in your life through going inside your mind. And see, I don't know if she's about transcendence. I do see her as a savior. And it makes sense that Lynch was having this creative block. I mean, when she's dancing around, if you could call that dancing on the stage, kind of just sidestepping, yeah. (laughs) A shuffle, yeah, a little soft shoe. But you see those weird alien sperm dropping down and she's stopping them. So if that baby is what has Henry has seen as something that has stopped his progression, you know, here is a character that's saying, no, we're going to stomp that sperm. You were not going to get pregnant. She's, I guess she's using birth control. <laughs> well, she's giving him the idea that he'll ultimately cash in on, that he will ultimately murder that baby. She's telling him right here in the get-go, just, it's so easy. You just stomp and squish and smile. It's it's no problem at all. Infant side is, is easy to do <laughs> here. Now, I guess another technical thing, the puppet in this of the baby is amazing, but the makeup effects, not so much. I remember, Stuart, you were grousing about Greta, the choking victim in Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Greta's puffed out cheeks look a hell of a lot better than Radiator Lady here. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but I think 
she almost looks like that. What is that? A, a trip to the moon, that old silent movie. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. She is like the opposite of the man and the planet. Like you have this rocky planet and I feel like that is about responsibility and control and she's about creativity. And, and so it's just this different representation of the planet. I think it's she's supposed to look greatery. I think it's really uh, important to stress that I don't think it's supposed to look photorealistic, that we're not supposed to believe that it's not makeup. There's always artifice. Uh, we'll talk about it. I look forward to, to pointing it out in future things. But when the Robins come in Blue Velvet, they're obviously robots. They're not real birds. And there's a lot of hokey effects in Dune and Wizard of Oz that comes up in Wild at Heart. I do think that Lynch... It's part of his sense of humor that he'll put things that look artificial and fake in the movie. And I think other artists do that, too. Michel Gondry uh, does that a lot in his movies. And, you know, I think about The Little Prince, if you remember that 70s version of that, where it was like the artificial world and the kid walked around 360 on it. But I just got the influence that this is in a long line of tradition of delightfully juvenile-looking hokey effects. But that isn't a detriment to say that they look fake. That's part of the aesthetic, if you can follow that line of thinking. Whereas Greta, uh, we're supposed to think, is actually happening. Yeah, I didn't get that they were going for this. And later on, we'll discuss his decapitation. And those two just, I felt like they just didn't have the tech there. They have a great cameraman. They've got a great visual artist. They've got a good puppeteer, but they don't have a good prosthetics guy. But again, I don't think that we're not supposed to think that that's not artifice. I mean, I don't think this movie is afraid to look artificial. I don't think it ever looks cheap. I guess that would be the the distinction I would make, that something can look fake without it looking tawdry. Here's my question. Is this vision or dream of the lady in the radiator? Is it a wet dream? Because he's Henry's going to wake up, Mary's back, she's in the bed, and he starts pulling out sperm again from the bed. Yeah, I, there's obviously a repulsion there, and worth pointing out that when the funding dried up and he went to Transcendental Meditation, he also got a divorce. The wife that was supporting him through his Philadelphia career and during all of this painful birthing of this movie ended up deciding she just didn't want it anymore. And the daughter did stay behind with Lynch. He actually moved into this set. He was actually living in Henry's room for the year and a half while they weren't filming, trying to paint, trying to find money for all of this. I think life was imitating art a lot. wonder how much he was staring at a radiator. Well, it was there on set, so <laughs> I, I don't know how much these ideas came from the radiator, but keep in mind, this was when he came up with the idea for the radiator lady. So, yes, I think that he was looking more intensely in his surroundings and trying to transcend how badly things were going. But he did meet another woman, and I don't know if she had dark hair and lived across the hall, but he did actually remarry during the making of this movie, too. She helped him find completion funds... And so I think in some ways she is a savior and could be seen as either the radiator lady or this vixen that the Dorothy Valens of this movie that brings home strange men and may or may not have slept with Henry one night. Yeah, this is where it kind of goes a bit off track. Mary just disappears. She left with a suitcase in a very funny scene. And then as Jacob said, she's just back one night for that weird thing where he's throwing snake sperm she's grinding her teeth and she's as annoying as the baby at this point i thought he was ripping out her intestines the first time he starts <laughs> pulling the snake out because she's making these noises and this weird 
white wrinkly tube is coming out i've heard it compared as an umbilical cord but to me the sperm imagery is consistent it's everywhere so i just felt like more sperm yeah i I did feel like it's a wet dream or maybe they had sex and he does not want another alien baby he's this is a an abortion maybe a, a form of birth control i don't know that it represents anything other than his repulsion towards her that at one point he seemed happy with her but again, never touched her. Now she seems to be infringing on his space. That this is He's a recluse. Keep in mind, he's a loner. So that she's in his bed, the baby's crying. He can't enjoy life the way that he used to, assuming he did enjoy life. Yeah, I think that he resents her being there and is okay with her leaving. I think he tells her that when she runs away with the suitcase. But then she came back after that and then she disappears. That was what was strange for me is he then sleeps with his neighbor. He's like, oh, I guess she went back to her parents. I'm thinking, oh, it's been a year since we filmed last and the actress is gone. But think about Lost Highway. Characters do things and they seem out of chronological sequence and they can't remember why they do them. I think that's a Lynch thing. And you need to remember what kicks all this off. Like this is where, if you've been following the narrative so far, this is where it gets really strange because we go back to that worm and it starts crawling around. We get this stop motion animation and its mouth opens up. The one he got in the mail that he put in the cupboard. Yes, the worm in the mail. It crawls around. Its mouth opens up and we go down its mouth and now yeah we're meeting with the woman across the hall and things start getting very weird if we've had some weird sex scenes it's gonna get only weirder yeah this is milk apparently that they got a a tank they shot a lot of this in old oil fields and so they had all these old oil tanks and they couldn't get water for some reason it was easier to get milk than water and so they were like in this like smelly milk having this yeah makeout session or whatever but the actors go for it and it does feel like they're on that planet it does feel like they're in outer space like sinking into the moon's surface there's always puddles when sex is involved we saw that sperm fall into a puddle at the beginning here spencer and the woman across the hall are in a puddle as they're making out i do love the look like that woman just that side eye she gives the baby as it's crying she's like this is a bad idea Mm -hmm. and while it's been in his care it's suffered too it's worth pointing out the baby has gotten some kind of disease it seems suddenly magically ill and sick and every time he threatens to leave it she it screams it really has dominated his life yeah it seems to like him because it cried all the time when the mother was there when the mother left it stopped crying it did get sick and it was it looked perfectly fine he turns away he turns back it's got warts covering all of its exposed area and it eventually gets better again but When he tries to leave, it cries, so it seems like the baby likes him well enough. It does cry when that lady's across the hall. He does try to smother it, it seems like, or at least try to drown out its cries. Yeah. That baby reminds us that there is another woman, that there is a mother, that there was this other life. And so that she comes into his, this neighbor comes into his room and he's trying to muffle the baby. It's, it's really his way of being like, let's not talk about the fact that I'm a married man and what I want to do with you is a sin here. But yeah, I think the baby is not cool with her, that, that it is upset and even will cackle later when he tries to, he's waiting for her to come and he hears the elevator. Oh, creepiest moment of the film. So that baby does laugh. I thought that might be a laugh. Yes, that is the scariest moment. Oh, it's laughing that, yeah, he basically gets the door shut on him, that that she prefers this greasy mustache man and that he's going to be alone feels, to me, I mean, 
again, this movie is open to large interpretations. To me, it felt it was mocking him and his attempt to leave it behind and its mother behind. And before we get there, I mean, again, we're going to go to the lady in the radiator after they sink into that hole. The lady's going to be singing, in heaven, everything is fine. We get that little musical number, and then it starts getting really weird as Henry enters the stage, and his head pops off. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. It's called a racer head, folks. You've got to give this as the climax, right? Oh yeah. I really thought the baby was a racer head. I mean, it has no name, it, its head is kind of weird. See, I always thought Henry was a racer head, even before he turns into a literal eraser because of that hairdo. It looks like an eraser on a pencil. Uh-huh. Agreed. Admittedly, I thought that because of kid and play in House Party. They call kid a racer <laughs> head, and so I thought it was the hair. Probably because, yeah, they're referencing this film. If this hairstyle ever comes into popularity, and I think it kind of did with some punk and fringe groups afterwards. Egon kind of had his hair this way. My hair looks like that after a long day editing with headphones. Yeah, I, th- I think we would call it the eraser head, just as we call it the erasial or the Clooney or whatever. <laughs> the- yes, just, just as famous as the Rachel. Jack Nance deserves this. This movie pioneers nothing else. It's the idea that you can take the pompadour this far. But yeah, it, it is more than that. And I, to me, I mean, obviously, this is just a fantasy sequence to be interpreted however you want. I don't think it's real. I think it's a dream. But it feels like an expression, an ultimate expression, that what's inside of you is meaningless and worthless, that you have nothing to share, that his head will be popped off brought to a pencil factory Uh, and it's replaced by the alien baby i I think that's an important aspect too is that when his head pops off that alien one springs out Uh, yeah and we get that puddle of blood again those bodily fluids as that head rolls around yeah whatever's going on the stage we'll come back to the stage uh, another time but the idea that your brain is basically going to be turned into a tool to erase things that it's associated with mistakes and that you will not leave a mark Especially for a printer, someone that prints things, and now he's being turned into a tool to erase it. The nightmare of not leaving a mark. To be a creative person or to want to express yourself and being quiet and not being able to get that out and now to be turned into something that takes communication even further away. To me, that's what this means. It really does feel like a low point for our main character that he really does believe in this dream and the sequence that his future is nihilistic. And see, I don't have so much the creative reading like that. Like, I never see Henry Spencer as a creative person. I I do just see this as someone who is being ground by adulthood, someone who's afraid of adulthood and being responsible. He's fleeing the baby. He sees the baby like ripping off his head. He's he's being ground down into an an industrial product. Like, yeah, there's a lot going on here. There's fear and anxiety going on, mostly. That's what you want. I think that's what Lynch wants you to feel. I have seen... Everything that happens here, I can't even begin to think how this relates. I mean, his head pops off and his baby's head is on his body. So I'm taking this as confirmation. He's an alien. That's his true form. (laughs) The head's rolling out and being picked up by a baby and then taken for erasers. I'm like, so these aliens are commonplace and the same way we use cows for glue, we use their discarded heads for erasers. Then the fact that... Eventually, the head is just back on his body and we're going to continue. Tells me this is like an intermission from the movie where Lynch is saying, hey, look at all this freaky shit that 
moves on. So you don't like metaphor is what I'm getting. You you don't like <laughs> surrealism. You don't like... I don't like surrealism. You are correct. I don't like impressionistic filmmaking. I can take surrealism to a degree, but I don't like nonsense and that's what i feel we got well dada is like the ultimate expression of like randomness like literally sometimes the artists don't even know the sequence of things that they express it's just thrown up vomited out if you will but surrealism to me at its best expresses ideas that can't be communicated well in language and in plot that sometimes the way i feel is exactly this and there's no other way to communicate it other than in this way. And this sequence to me feels like that. It's like, I can't tell you the way I feel in a story, but I can make you feel it by watching this strange, surreal passage. What I can say then is this movie fails in making me feel anything. Okay, well, I mean, I think being left cold by a movie it would be easy to do because it's not particularly warm or inviting. Other, It's been a long time since we've had the humor of the dinner sequence, and I can't imagine a lot of audience people have gotten tired and restless. The original cut of this movie, I want to point out, was 22 minutes longer. That Lynch, when he first premiered it, had additional scenes and realized there was just stuff that didn't need to be here. and because he cut it out so fast, they can't even find it for bonus features now on new DVDs. It's lost. It's gone. But apparently there were sequences where he was spying on a neighbor who was doing like S&M with a car battery and two girls in a bed and just kind of stuff that, that some kids were finding money in the snow and stuff that gives you a sense of what was going on around Henry, but not really putting Henry's story for lack of a better word, forward. So if you feel like this movie is slow at 89 minutes, know that it could be even more trying. And I think it was right to keep this lean. I feel like this movie is just long enough. Yeah, I, I feel it's an appropriate length. I never feel bored during it. Again, I feel dread during this film. Like, again, from the sound design, the visuals, all that. Like, I do see this as a, yeah, surrealist horror film. I don't see any horror here. I see some grotesqueness, but Jacob, your use of horror just makes me wonder what your definition of horror is. Grotesque. Why wouldn't grotesque count? Yeah, I mean, there's grotesque here. I, I like when there's that, just that vibe. I, if you saw The Witch, which came out uh, last year, or even that first Evil Dead, I or a lot of Japanese horror, it's just about the vibe. It's about how unsettling it is. It's not so much about someone in a mask jumping out and stabbing you. Horror, to me, connotes fear, and not just gross yeah being turned into an industrial product like that's your life and all creativity has been driven out of you that is fear to me that's a strange pomo fear that i do not understand i mean you're you're a podcaster and and do like six podcasts like i think you have a creative edge i mean wouldn't if that was driven from you that wouldn't cause some kind of existential dread that would not be horror existential crisis yes horror no i think that some of the best horror movies are exactly this, extrapolations of anxieties and fears. It's not the fear of being hit with an axe. It's psychological things that manifest themselves in horror movie tropes. And in that way, I do think Eraserhead definitely fits the definition. It, I see a psychological condition that's been turned into a nightmare world. But does it have a happy ending? I think one thing that I've seen a lot in Lynch is that we get an ending with smiles, 
but I'm never quite sure whether I should feel good about it or not. That indeed, his head is returned to his body. He awakens from his bed and he decides to do an act. Infanticide? Is that your happy ending? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was sort of encouraged to him by his muse. The lady in the radiator kind of paved the way for this. And this is a very passive character. This is a character where most things have happened to him. This may be one of the few things that he actually actively does. Even having that baby felt like it was something that someone pulled a lever and made him do. But he makes the choice to pick up that scissors and cut those bandages and then really go for it. And the first time I watched this, it almost seemed like he wanted to know what was under those bandages, like almost a bonding experience. This time watching it, it does seem more deliberate. Like he knows what's under there. He knows what he wants to do. But I, I think you could see it two different ways. Like, okay, what what is this baby all about? Like, what does this mean? And do I want it? He is repulsed when he cuts it open. Whether or not he knew what was under there, I feel this is his first time seeing it. You know, he may have known what he wanted to do, but if all he wanted to do was stab this baby, he didn't have to cut the bandages open to do it. Yeah, no, I agree. And we, I think we all wanted to see one. I mean, it was difficult to know if it had a human body because it was just sort of a head wrapped in mummified, really, in bandages to know what it was and how much it might look like him. Yeah, I, I, how much it looks like him? It's very male. We at least know it's a boy. That's the way I see it. I don't see any of that. None of that. I see heart, lung, organs. I do not see anything that looks like male reproductive organs in there, though. They could be lungs or they could be testes. I mean, I could go either way on those. I, I Again, I think Lynch doesn't want to make it clear what they are. And if you're into Freudian, I mean, you can write who knows how many papers. I'll be honest. I read a lot of research stuff to prep for tonight and honestly some of some of what where people take this it's way too heady for me i mean i i don't need a movie to represent the kind of political ideological thought processes that people want to impose upon this movie but yes this could be a castration metaphor and all kinds of other things but to me it feels liberating that's all i can say definitively for me he has made an act it was a violent act but it was an expression and it has changed his world. The planet explodes. The thing that we saw at the beginning crumbles away. His head, I don't know, like pencil shavings out into the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, it almost seems like, though, that baby is haunting him. Like, that neck comes out, the head is floating there. It gets like, it, maybe it's real big or maybe it's just close-ups. But I always feel like the head enlarges and turns into that planet. Like, it is the death. Again, I think if you see the man in the planet as being that mechanical, responsible person, that man in the planet's pulling at those levers, but just sparks are shooting out. He can't stop it. And yeah, it does crumble. It is this a happy thing that he destroys his sense of responsibility to become a creative? I don't know, but that's the path he chooses. Yeah, I think the baby turns into the front end of a 50s pickup truck or something. I'm not even sure what the hell we're seeing at that point. And it is very strange. But no, this this isn't a happy movie. This isn't a happy ending. He gets a hug. Not a lot of people are hugging this guy. He gets a genuine hug. He can finally touch the lady in the radiator. When he tried earlier, she disappeared into whiteness. And here, this is clearly an embrace. 
I don't know if he finally made it to heaven, but he seems to be in a better place anyway. I feel like that lady in the radiator is where he went when he was daydreaming, laying on that bed, staring and hearing the hissing of the radiator. I don't know. Maybe he's totally lost and doesn't know where to go. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. You know, it goes all white in, in Western tradition. That That is heaven. That is a good thing. But is it in this film? I don't know if I feel good at the end of it. I mean, I think most people are just kind of stunned and uh, how they process what they've seen and, and how much entertainment value they can find in it will be to each own person to discover. But I definitely feel like it leaves a mark. Don't worry about this movie being erased. Anyone that sees Eraserhead is going to remember it. I don't know that I agree. I don't know that I'm going to remember much about this film in three years. I think there's images here you'll never forget. A plot, there was none to begin with to remember. But No, there's no images here that are going to stick with me. There really aren't. I'm thinking it through to see if there's any single thing. That baby alone is worth remembering. Yeah, the cheeks, the baby. I don't know how you could experience this world and be like, eh, been there, done that. The cheeks I found so cheap looking that they didn't stick with me. The baby might be the one thing. I may remember what that baby looked like, that weird glossy head that seems all too alive. But that would be probably it. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Eraserhead? Jacob. Again, do you want to see a movie about an emotion? That, that's really first and foremost that the way I see this film. Like, it, it is not about narrative or plot or reality. It, it is about a feeling. And is that going to work for you? Well, I think it does. I think Lynch pulls it off in a racer head. It is, for me, again, a haunting film, one that gives me anxiety just from the sound design alone. Like, the, the hums and the, the hisses. It's, it is a movie that hits me. Much like 2001 did. Like, that was a movie that's, it's really more about than just the moving pictures on the screen. It's about the emotion and the feeling and, and all that. And I feel Eraserhead is the same way. Like, Lynch, yeah, he starts off with a student film, but it, it's, it's better than a student film. And he pulls one off that is haunting and, and worth seeing and worth remembering. A strong, strong recommend for Eraserhead. Stuart. Yeah, you know, I, I've always felt that I was robbed because I can never remember my dreams. Some people do, and they keep a dream journal. You got to get a dream journal. That's the first step. And as you write them down, you'll remember them more. But I love them. I find them incredibly entertaining. I love surrealism. I love people that can express things well in this way. And it's more than just throwing nonsense at the screen. I mean, in order to get me to feel something, it has to be more than that. And I do feel like this movie is troubling, but is amusing, will take me through a gamut of emotions, and does feel like a waking dream. And I most treasure my experience watching it in theaters as an impressionable kid, deciding really around that same time I was going to go to film school as well. I connect to it. I love that it is this memory in my life. It feels like a dream the way that I saw this. Now, I don't know that I need to see this again and again. There are some David Lynch movies that I return to again and again. I haven't for this one. I don't know how often I will, but I do feel like it is really the touchstone for so much of what he would do later. So much of what he is going to accomplish is inarguably tied back to this work and that he's able to create all of that and those tools and create his language here is really, really impressive. It's, it's watching an artist emerge almost fully formed, which is rare that a first film feels like that. That certainly wasn't true for Christopher Nolan. 
I guess it was kind of true for Tarantino, but Orson Welles, some people do make their greatest film their first film, but it's rare that you make your artistic statement the first time you get up to bat. And I think Lynch really has done that, whether you like it or not. One thing that I'll add is that, yes, I experienced this more as an art gallery than maybe as a traditional film, but I think that, as in all good curating of a museum, it'd be really great to pair this movie with Close Encounters of a Third Kind, a movie that came out the same year in 77 from a filmmaker of the same age about the same subject, about a man who is drawn to the cosmic and who decides that his family is not enough and that he's going to follow his artistic bliss. Two very similar movies with two radically different approaches to telling that story. I think it would be an excellent double bill, and I give both of those movies high recommends. I would say to me, this film is epitomized by that baby. This film has some Lynch hallmarks that I know very well from seeing his later works. But when you cut open that bandage, it's not fully formed. It's a lot of organs that are there. I mean, the literal definition of viable is able to exist outside the womb. That baby was not viable. This film is not viable. I'll say that I am so glad I watched it twice. Because the first time I walked away, honestly, the words I would use is burning hatred. Absolute utter anger at having spent 90 minutes of my life on it. And then you spent 90 more. <laughs> this is now playing. This is what we do. <laughs> yeah, that was big of you. I, I, I'm actually, it doesn't surprise me that you would have that reaction. And I'm glad that you were able to push through and give it a second go. The second time through, I could really appreciate the cinematography. A lot of people don't like black and white. I actually happen to love it. I spent a lot of time doing black and white photography back when we had things called film and photo paper and dark rooms. And so I can really get into that look. And I like specific images here. But overall, I feel this just isn't the whole that I want it to be. And more, I kind of go back to 2001 in a couple different ways. I was thinking 2001 a lot, both times I watched this movie. The floating Henry head reminded me of the space baby and all of that. But while the black and white visuals are good, it has so much less plot and so much less visually appealing and certainly doesn't have the wonderful opera music that Kubrick brought in. So it is a lesser kind of wannabe 2001 in my mind. And more, I think I said this in our 2001 review, I started now playing for people who like movies, you know, for people who just enjoy giving analysis to G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, as well as Star Wars and the Marvel films and the horror films. This is a moving painting, and I can completely understand its point in a gallery. And I think I've told the story about when I went to the Museum of Modern Art and they had a chair exhibit. And literally, all I saw were chairs on like a raised platform. And then I saw the security guard's chair, and it was like an Ikea display, really. I mean, these chairs were not specially painted. These chairs were not hanging from walls. There were chairs in a row, and then there was the security guard's chair that I didn't know if it was part of the display or not. It just wasn't roped off. Just a bunch of chairs. It was like Ikea. I want to do a podcast now where I just take you to different modern art museums <laughs> and just watch you freak out at art. <laughs> and Ikea. Arnie Hates Art is the name of this podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, Ikea is as artistic as MoMA. That's what I will say. Uh, look, I don't want to go down this road, but I'm sure there was an intention behind this, Arnie, and maybe we're tapped in or not. Uh, well, I don't hate art. I mean, I've been to the Del Prado in Madrid and stared at a Picasso just absorbing its beauty. And I spent a full day at the Louvre looking at sculptures and paintings that are before time I can conceive of and have tremendous mastery. When I look at a painting or a sculpture, not only can I admire an artist's technique, as I do Lynch's here, it makes me feel something. When I look at a whole bunch of chairs, where's the artistry? Is he an upholsterer? And what it makes me feel is incredulity. That somebody sold somebody else that this is my art. The pretension oozes, and so I'm left rolling my eyes. I mean, I enjoy individual scenes in this movie. The scene with Mary crying while right in front of her in frame, her father's given that crazy-ass smile, that is great in isolation. I just can't take 90 minutes of it. My point is, I never wanted Now Playing to ever touch this kind of experimental filmmaking, and I hope we never, ever cover one again. We do have a lot of Lynch films left. <laughs> yeah, this is part one of a retrospective. We are completists, and thus... To do the rest of Lynch, this is what we do. But I've seen most of the rest of his films. They all have these elements, but they're all better than this. They will all have more plot. And Lynch himself said when he made this, he was never thinking about an audience. I don't think he ever expected this to be seen. From now on, he will make commercial films. They're going to be made his way. Mm, no, there's one that is just like this. It comes towards the end. I don't want to cover it. We're going to, but I don't want to cover it. <laughs> I'll leave you to find out which one. I never want this type of movie on my show again. Strong not recommend. Well, you know, I, I, what I'm curious about is how you're going to rectify this. Because I can get maybe not digging this movie or wanting to spend the time that's asked of you to be in this movie, but to be a Lynch fan of later works, to see that he's doing his techniques and his tricks and learning his grammar here. There's no hook. This movie has absolutely no hook. It has no story. And the stuff of his I love has a hook. Like, it has a who killed Laura Palmer or who's stalking Bill Pullman, and Patricia Arquette. But I don't know that there are answers to those hooks. I don't know that there's strong narratives. And I think that if you are a fan of narrative, there's only a few in Lynch's canon that is going to truly satisfy you. But one of them's coming next week. Yeah, well, truthfully, I feel I don't have enough drugs for this movie. And I think some of the others don't require the heavy dosage of drugs that I feel a true enjoyment of Eraserhead does. Because to sit there, I was thinking about this on my second viewing. All the hypothesizing about this, is he a bird? Is he an alien? Is this all in his mind? You know what? I don't care. I just don't care. But if I was back in college and you were passing me a bong, I might care a lot more. I've never watched this one on drugs, and... I'm absorbed by it every time. So I, I guess it's just a difference of opinion. 
I wouldn't want to be on drugs for a racer head. Yeah. I mean, I think there are trip movies. I think 2001 is a trip movie. I think a lot of people did smoke weed and watch this. But I, I, I would hate to dismiss midnight movies as only for people that need something to look at when they're stoned. I think that this movie didn't offer you anything. And I get that. But I will be curious to know how what was done here will entertain you in the future. Because we'll see many of these actors techniques moments set design flourishes they will repeat again and again in new and i think probably more entertaining ways for you arnie i think so and i don't think they're all going to hit with me but what i will say is he tries to tell a story here i don't feel he even tried yeah well i I don't know that it has to be a criticism but i hear it is from you that you demand narrative and this one just doesn't have enough i'll agree with that but it does have a slimy baby And if you're a silver level donor, you can't get enough of them because we just released Fly 2. And that baby's way slimier. (laughs) This baby is grosser than that one, but that one actually ends up looking pretty normal for most of its years. I don't know. It looks like Eric Stoltz. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but not mask Eric Stoltz. And if you go gold, we're still in 1986 with Wes Craven, the master of horrors, Deadly Friend. It's going to be scary. Yep, this Friday, I go back to a movie I never thought I would see again. It's deadly. And if you want more anthropomorphic craziness, Elephant Man. And I do think that, boy, if there's a sentimental one, if this was Lynch, I mean, it was up for Best Picture. I mean, this this is a big, emotional, narrative-driven movie that we're going to cover next week. So even if you hated Eraserhead, and I'm sure some of you out there did, I think that next week things get pretty different. I'm looking forward to all the laughs because it's a Mel Brooks production. Yes, I will be talking about that. When I attended the David Lynch Festival, Mel was there to talk about why and how he made that film and why they chose David Lynch. We'll learn all of those mysteries next week. So if you want to join us for the Fly series, this is the last podcast in our Silver Donation series. Believe it or not, this donation drive is coming to an end in just a few weeks. So while these podcasts are still available as part of this drive head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate or click the banner at the top of our page ten dollars or more you get all five fly reviews 25 or more you get eight more horror reviews from 1986 which will still be going for the next few weeks so you can get a few more weeks of two shows per week $35 or more, you get the entire donation bundle, which includes all of those reviews plus the three reanimator shows. Find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. And speaking of the donations and the staff we have, I would be remiss if I didn't give a complete shout out to Heath. You hear his name in the credits, the unsung hero of Now Playing. He's been with us for years. And this, he edited this very show, but he hasn't heard this part of it. This is his 100th edit for us. Woohoo! Yeah, I mean, anybody that talks for a living is always grateful for an editor. <laughs> not everything we say is gold. Most of what we say is not gold, but he finds the gold in all of our ums and ahs and gibberish. And yeah, thank you, Heath, for all that you sit through and again and again do for us. Yeah, definitely thank you. I know Arnie has a very high standard for the audio that goes out for now playing, and that would not be possible without our editors. So to have someone do 100 shows, that, that's huge. That's a huge help for now playing, so thank you. 
Yeah, and I know you guys have only talked to Heath occasionally. I talk to him pretty regularly. And for him to have the enthusiasm he has after a hundred edits, I mean, editing is a Sisyphean task. It is not for everyone. Oh, I've, I've done audio editing. It's not fun. Thankless, yes. <laughs> Awful, yes. Particularly when it's about, like, Swamp Thing 2. <laughs> <laughs> so... Thank you so much, Heath. You truly are our champion, and we appreciate you endlessly. And Jacob, Stuart, thank you for joining me. You bet. We'll see you next week, right? You're not running away. Nope, I'm not going anywhere. I've, I know what next week brings is better than this. It might bring some tears. I don't know. It's a tough one. I cried the first time I saw it. And until next week, I can't take it anymore. I'm going home. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, you'll come back tomorrow. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. I'll do what I want to do. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. You never come around anymore. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm afraid to... Cut it, you know? You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you very much. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. I can't even sleep. I'm losing my mind. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Shut up! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You're in very bad trouble if you won't cooperate. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Well, I don't, I, I don't think that's any of your business. Henry! I... Sorry. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.
And this is the host that loves a dinner of man-made chickens, Jacob. <laughs> I was going to sing the song, Arnie. I was going to bust out the pipes. I was going to sing it too, honestly, but I lost the tune. I couldn't remember the tune. What? How could you? It's such an earworm. That's all I bit had going on in my head since I watched this film the last three days is, in heaven, everything is fine. Like over and over and over. I can't get it out. The Pixies covered it frequently. The Pixies covered it. Devo's covered it. Bauhaus has covered it. Like so many bands have covered this. Yeah. I had it in my head until we talked from beyond and then I just couldn't pull it off at the last minute. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to say the lines. This movie did suffer from the budget it was given. AFI, I think, came up with $10 million initially, and then when they ran out of that, they never knew they were funding a feature-length film. Is $10 million, was $10 million the right number that you said? Yeah, it was $10 million ultimately. Okay, wow, that seems like a lot for this kind of film. Oh, did I say $10 million? Yeah, you said $10 back million. <laughs> did you mean 10000 Yeah, that's what I thought. Back, back up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, wow, that's a blooper. I'm like, how did he blow through $10 million? $10 million, my <laughs> God. No movie was that in, in 1974 or whatever. From AFI, no less. They had way too much fucking <laughs> government funding. No, it was a private institute. It was an oil tycoon that runs ah. it, actually. It was a rich kid. And until next week... Oh, f- what was my end quote? There's so few lines. I was hoping you would just regurgitate. <laughs> oh, that would probably be the blooper sound. <laughs> yeah. Blooper sound is the fucking opening credits sound. Just cacophony. Actually, I'm probably going to take the end credits music for the opening music. And then cacophony for the end credits. I try to be inviting to our listeners on the f- opening credits. <laughs>